The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, Episode 9, Harp Strings. Is everything all right? Mara queried. Our pilot seems to have flown early. A bit rude, don't you think? I'm sure he didn't mean anything by it, Jack wrote, though he felt deeply alarmed. While he was sure there was probably a good reason for Lucas' sudden departure, the fact that it was timed with that of the infernal cat left him with a definite sense of foreboding. He probably had to start work early or work an extra shift for a colleague, Adeline offered. He was there for the story, and the Decameron's log would have told him whether he was to take the next tale. I'm sure he'll be there for the next episode. Hope you're ready, Jack. I will be, Jack said. And in this age of prequels after sequels, I shall tell thee what went before and what comes after Adeline's tale. I hope you enjoy it. Mara and Adeline both signed off. Isabel felt very uneasy, while Mara's curiosity was definitely piqued. The fool Yvonne was nothing if not good-natured and polite. It wasn't like him to leave abruptly without warning or farewell. Had he just logged out? Or... Mara grinned. She signed on to Moot again and queried whether Yvonne or Jack were still present. Moot said, Jack is not logged in. Yvonne is gone. Mara asked, Gone where? Moot replied, I know not where. Mara thought the use of the first-person pronoun was curious. Since when does a program respond as if self-aware? She tried again. Why has he gone? To retrieve the needle you called his death. Is the needle somewhere in the story world? Yes. Will he find it? Anything is possible. Do you know where it is? Yes. Can you show me? That part of the story is no longer yours. Can you retrieve it? To what purpose? You could give it to me and I could return it to him. You caused him to lose it in the first place. Your reasoning is circular but flat. His journey is dimensional. Mara hit quit rather than logging off from Moot in the usual way, muttering a curse against all artificial intelligence of any kind. It was too stupid to deal with. Really, it was. The user did not sign off at the end of the exchange, Moot noted, and automatically filed a bug report, which included a transcript of the chat with Mara Darkmage. Because the program was user-supported, Bug reports were held in a downloadable public directory, along with those aspects of code that users were allowed to add to or modify in order to create plugins like Jack's Decameron, or places and objects for their parties to discover. After an adventure was over, these additions would be removed from the world but held in a common archive with the creator's permission for others to use in their story campaigns. Jack found the bug report. 
Forewarned is forearmed indeed. Isabel worried about Lucas throughout the day, messaging Jack at intervals to see whether he'd heard from him. Jack had not. He'll turn up. He's probably the toughest and most resourceful of any of us. Don't worry. I've been meaning to ask you the end of the story you told when the smoky-colored cat turned red and disappeared. That was none of mine, Isabel stated flatly. No? That's a bit odd. What could have caused it? she asked. Well, Moot's an old program, Jack said. It's been around in some form or another since there were keyboards and screens. Not much fun telling a story with punch cards, so I don't think it's quite that old. Punch what? asked Isabel. Never mind, old tech, Jack replied. He wasn't old enough to have used them, but a knowledge of outdated technology kept Jack humble. It gave him a sense of the history of his craft and his own transient mark upon it. As far as I can see, he continued, there are three possible reasons for the cat's transformation. For one thing, as I said, Moot is old and has layers and layers of past stories and old code. It's possible that the red cat figured in another tale, as he will in the one that I will tell. Or, Moot has some new features implemented by the developers, like a phone assistant. If that's it, then the story world suggested that the red cat's appearance at the end of the story would be fitting or exciting, based on your telling. Oh, great, Isabel said. An assistant. I've never actually turned mine on. If I wanted a soulless entity to think for me and tell me what to do, I'd go home and see my brother Owen. Jack laughed. What's the third possible explanation for the red cat? That's a little darker, Jack shared the bug report. Mara's trying to influence to bespell moot, Isabel asked incredulously. Can she do that? Successfully, I mean? Well, if she is who Lucas says she is, deception and temptation are her things. But if she asks the right questions to those parts of moot that are open source, yes, she could, quite possibly. How long before she gets to the right question? How long is the piece of string that tethers the devil to hell? Jack replied. Is there any way we can protect ourselves? I'm working on that, Jack said. In the meantime, don't give her too much to play with, but don't let her suspect you are holding back either. It's a fine balance, I know. Jack, it's a crazy year with everything happening in the world. What I mean to say is, do you ever wish you hadn't signed up for this? You could quit. We could all walk away. From what Lucas has said, those who try once they're in her sights don't get very far. And we have to find out what's happened to Lucas. We can't just leave him. So you're all stuck with the knave of hearts, I'm afraid. That's how I feel, too. It's insane, Isabel said. It's just a text story, but it feels much bigger, and I want to see where it goes, and find out where Lucas went and get him back, if we can. Me too. See you tonight. The show goes on, even if Lucas isn't there. We'll bring him up to speed whenever he reappears. Agreed? Jack asked. Isabel agreed and sent a wave as she signed off. That evening, Jack did a little preparation. He set a manor with a great hall in the woods and described three throne-like chairs on a raised platform, one of which he feared would remain empty. 
He had toyed with the idea of dressing himself like a visiting king, but instead he wore motley rags and carried a small harp. The strings glittered with some of his best code. He was pleased with the way it turned out. How do I look? he asked Moot. Suitably ridiculous, Moot approved dryly. Two other members of your party have arrived. They now occupy two of the thrones. The third is vacant. Will you wait? Jack said no, even as he sketched a bracketed bow to Adeline and Mara. Very well, it begins, said Moot. Mara and Adeline commented approvingly on their surroundings. Good evening, Jack began, strumming his harp. As promised, I plan to tell you what goes before and what comes after the fine tale Adeline gave us. Let me begin by saying that once in the days when Ireland had kings, there lived a loyal and noble man named Connell, who had four sons, and these were friends of the princes of the realm, the four sons of the king of Ireland. So close were they as to be brothers, but as young men do sometimes, they found occasion to fight, and the king's eldest son was slain. The king was grieved and angry and sentenced all of Connell's sons to death, but not the father, because the king knew he wasn't present at the fight, and the greatest punishment Connell could receive would be to live to a ripe old age without his sons by him. Connell pleaded his long service and friendship, and finally the king relented, saying, Connell, if you and your sons go now across the sea and bring me the brown horse of the king of Lachlan, I will forgive the blood debt your sons owe my house and my line. Connell agreed, even though he thought the price was still far too steep. He and his sons traveled to Lachlan and sought hospitality from a miller for the night. When Connell disclosed his plan, the miller said it was foolhardy. The king loved the beast so well, the only way to get it would be to steal it, and the stables were well guarded. But if you can come up with a plan, winked the miller, I shall keep your secret. Connell asked that he and his sons be put into sacks of feed for the horses so that they could be smuggled into the stables. The miller's servants obliged, and right away Connell's sons wanted to grab the beast once they got there and be off. Connell insisted that they make hiding places in the stables first in case the plan went awry. The brown horse was a fine, unbroken creature, and when Connell and his sons laid hands on him, he kicked and whinnied for all he was worth. The king sent his servants to the stables, but Connell and his sons hid. Again this happened, and finally the king of Lachlan said that if there was noise from the stables again, he would go out with the servants himself to make sure that his prize horse hadn't come to mischief. Even though Connell and his sons hid again, the king was canny and spied footprints and disturbances in the hay, and soon Connell and his sons were discovered. When Connell revealed that he planned to steal the horse and why, the king of Lachlan swore that he would kill Connell's sons himself. But if you would beg for their lives and buy them back, said the king, then tell me a tale for the soul of your youngest, Connell. Tell me of a time when you were in greater straits than now. And Connell told him the tale of the black cats and the red one that we heard from Adland. And Connell vowed that he didn't breathe until all the cats were done for, and that was a harder time than what his sons faced now. The king was pleased. You have your youngest son, Connell. Tell me a second tale to regain your second youngest. Connell began. 
When I was young, I was out hunting on my father's lands near the sea, and I was distracted and lost my footing. I fell down a cliff path into a steep valley, landing on such a quantity of heather I was unhurt. But the sides of the valley were so steep that I had no idea how I should get out again. While I was trying to find a way out, I met a fierce giant with a patch on one eye, herding a few dozen goats. The giant dragged me into his lair and threatened to skewer and roast me. As he was putting a great cauldron on the fire, I said I had some skill in healing and would restore the sight in his blind eye. Instead, I blinded the other one. In his fury, he blocked the entrance to the cave and I had no choice but to hide in the cave until morning. The giant commanded me to help him let his goats out to graze. As I untied each one, he blindly stroked it and called it by name, and in this way he identified each of his animals, even though he was blind. In his little herd there was one buck. While the others were bleating to be let out, I killed and skinned the animal bagwise, putting my arms in the forelegs and my legs in the hindquarters and wearing the horns on my head. When I got past the giant, I cast off the skin and said, I am free in spite of you. The giant replied, You are so clever, you are worthy of my greatest treasure. Take this magic ring from me, it's yours. Throw it on the ground, I'll have nothing from your hand, I said. The giant threw it and I picked it up and put it on. Where are you, my ring? asked the giant. Here, said the ring, and the giant came running towards me. The ring was fast around my finger. I couldn't pull it off, so I cut off the finger with the ring and cast it into the sea. When the giant asked the ring where it was, he ran headlong into the waves and drowned. For my part, said Connell, I went into the cave and took all the silver and gold I could carry and went home. As proof, you can see the finger is gone from my hand. The king of Lochlin saw Connell's hand and praised his tail. Another son is restored to you, Connell. To save a third, another tail is required. When I was newly married, Connell said, I went hunting again and saw a curious boat near the shore that was full of all kinds of treasure. When I went to take some of these riches, I fell into the boat and it pushed off from the shore with no aid, sailing straight for a small island. When I got out of the boat, it immediately sailed back to the opposite shore. The island seemed deserted, and I had no idea how I would survive or get back to my home. I walked up the long hill that seemed to be its main feature and came down into a glen on the other side, where I saw a weeping woman holding a knife to the throat of her baby. I asked what she meant to do, and she said the child had to be cooked for the giant who lived on the island, or else her own life was forfeit. She returned to the cave where the giant lived, nursed the child, and he fell asleep. I helped her hide the baby in a basket, and I climbed into the cauldron meant to cook the giant's supper. She lit a fire and added cold water for the appearance of the thing. When the giant returned, he asked whether the child was properly boiled, and the woman said he wasn't quite done. From the pot I cried, Mama, it's boiled I am. The giant laughed and fell asleep near the cauldron, snoring loudly, still clutching his great hunting spear. I was scalded in the pot, but as soon as the giant was asleep, the woman whispered to me and I escaped through the hole in the huge cauldron lid meant to let out the steam. The climb out was easy, except my legs were scalded and I lost some of the skin on my hips making my way out of the pot. 
The woman told me that the only way to kill the giant was with his own weapon, so I went for the spear. The giant snored so ferociously that each time he inhaled, I feared I would be swallowed, and each time he breathed out, I was fair blown across the room. But finally, I got the spear away from him. This giant also had one eye, though not through injury. He had but one great eye in the center of his face. I pierced that eye with the spear, and when the giant woke with the pain, he stretched back and up and hit his head on the cauldron, driving the spear point home. He fell down dead. Connell was about to finish his tale when the king's mother, who had been listening to his stories, jumped up and cried, You are him? You are the one who saved me and the child who grew up to become the king you see before you? She embraced Connell and admonished the king, her son, to release Connell's sons from harm and give Connell any reward he asked for. The king agreed and sent Connell home in a royal barge with the brown horse, fine livery, and saddlebags full of treasure. Once home, Connell's king released his family from the blood debt. They were restored to favor and a great feast was held. The king forgave Connell's sons and received them as if they were his own. And I should know how fine that feast was, for I was there, Jack finished, sounding the last chord on his poet's harp. A string twanged a discord as it broke. The Decameron shuffled, nine of spades. That's me again, said Mara with some satisfaction. A wonderful story, Jack though your card was somewhat inauspicious. Still, it's just a tale. What do we have to lose? Blood feuds, she thought. What fun! Jack looked first at his broken harp, the coated runes on the string spilling forlornly on the floor, winking out like dying embers, then over at the vacant throne. A friend, Jack thought sadly, as the empty, broken harp string curled up and blazed momentarily into the golden outline of a fiery feather. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.